Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 22. We're in Acts chapter 22 this morning. I mentioned last week that as a result of Paul's arrest, he was given at least six high-profile opportunities to witness. In our passage today, we're going to take a look at one of the, that first opportunity there. You remember, Jesus told Paul that he would testify of him before not just the Jews, but the Gentiles and governing authorities. And next week, we'll actually see him testify in front of a governing authority. But actually, no, I'm sorry, two weeks from now, we'll get to see him testify before a governing authority. But in these last few chapters of the book of Acts, there's six different high-profile opportunities that Paul has. And as we talked about that just briefly last week, we look at the injustice that Paul suffered and see how he turned that into an opportunity for the gospel. And he may not have gotten the opportunities that we're going to see over the next few weeks here had it not been for his arrest. And so God certainly used these difficulties and these trying times for Paul to further the gospel. And that's the perspective that Paul had, and it's a perspective we ought to have on that. In our passage today, we're going to look at, again, the first of these six opportunities. Before we get into that, however, I want to share a few things that I found actually quite interesting as I studied through the book of Acts. And it has to do with Paul's speeches. Paul's speeches can be categorized in the book of Acts into two different groups. The terms typically used would be missionary speeches and then defense or apologetic speeches. If you look at Paul's speeches throughout the book of Acts, you can divide them into those two categories. His first speeches in Acts then would be his missionary speeches. They're primarily found in Acts chapter 13 through chapter 21. They basically cover his time through his three missionary journeys. Most of the speeches he gives there would be considered missionary speeches. He preaches before the synagogue in Acts chapter 13. He preaches before the citizens in Lystra. You remember in Acts chapter 14 when they thought he and Barnabas were the Greek god Zeus and Hermes. He gave that speech to him. Mars Hill, remember him preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17? Those are missionary speeches where he focuses primarily on the gospel. However, as we get to the second half of Paul's ministry here, we see his defense speeches. And those are primarily the end of Acts here. And they're generally found in his travel from Jerusalem to Rome. He has two speeches in Jerusalem before an angry mob and before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He has a speech before Felix and Festus, the two governors. He has a speech before King Agrippa. And then he has a speech before the Jewish leaders in Rome. Those are all referred to as his defense speeches. Those are the emphasis there would be on the apologetics, the defense of the gospel. So we would say that the missionary speeches focus primarily on presenting the gospel, while the defense speeches primarily focus on Paul defending his calling as a preacher of the gospel. Does that make sense? One focuses the content is basically on presenting the gospel itself, and the other is a defense of Paul as a preacher of the gospel, why he was called to do that. So that was the first thing I found rather interesting about Paul's time here, as we've seen him in his missionary journeys, but then also in his traveling to Rome here. A second interesting fact is that Luke records twice as many verses from Paul's defense period, if you will, as he does his missionary. And in fact, when it comes down to the speeches themselves, we actually have twice as much, twice as many words, if you will, in Paul's defensive speeches as we do his missionary speeches, which is rather interesting. And I think the reason for that is, is that much of, the, much of our witness as Christians comes not just in our verbally preaching or declaring the gospel, but in everyday life as we defend why we believe what we believe. Remember, we were told that we are always to be prepared to give a defense of the joy and the hope that we have. And we see that sort of in Paul's life in many respects. I think Luke, as he records these events portrays much of Paul's impact through his defensive speeches, defending his role as a preacher of the gospel. And so we'll see that as we go through the book of, or the the last few chapters in the, the book of Acts here. Luke spends a lot more time recording the actual words of Paul's defensive speeches, twice as many as he did his missionary speeches. The final thing I found interesting is that Paul's defensive speeches aren't so much about defending himself 
as they are defending his calling as a preacher and a witness of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that as we study some of what he does, where even though he does defend himself, he turns it into an opportunity to do more than that, and it's to defend himself as a faithful, obedient servant of Jesus Christ in presenting the gospel. That's more important to him than sort of getting out of the sticky situation he might have found himself in. And there's some fascinating things that he does, and we'll look, look at those over the course of the next few weeks. I want to look at one of those today. We're in Acts chapter 22, and we're going to see how Paul handles this opportunity, this defensive speech, if you, if you will. We're in chapter 22. We'll be working our way through that today. Now, one of the accusations that the mob made against Paul is found up in verses 28 and following of chapter 21. They said he had been preaching against the Jews, he had been preaching against the law, he had been preaching against the temple and defiling it. Let's go ahead and read 28 of chapter 21. So just jump bump back out of the chapter we're going to be in today, but just to set some context here. Chapter 21, verse 28. They were crying out, this is the Jewish mob that had come to attack Paul. Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. Notice it says that he was preaching against his own people. In essence, they were calling him an anti-Semite. said he was preaching against the law, against Moses. And besides, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So those were the false accusations they had made against Paul. But we are told that he actually loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 9 with me, if you will. Romans chapter 9, just the first five verses. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of of my brethren, he's talking about the Jews there, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple of service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. In fact, Paul spends three chapters in the book of Romans talking about his love and his affection for God's people his fellow Jews. And yet, here we are in Acts chapter 21, when Paul is in Jerusalem, he's being accused by Jews of literally hating his own people, of hating Moses, defiling the temple. But, you see, Paul loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. He loved the law. He understood that the law was a tutor that was intended to lead us to Jesus Christ, not a tool for salvation. He obviously respected the temple. In fact, he understood its importance because he went to the temple to make offerings. That's actually what got him in trouble here. He went into the temple to fulfill a vow and to perform a cleansing ritual in the temple with some other men. The Jews saw him there, had heard the false accusations against him, dragged him out of the temple, began to beat him and almost killed him. But Paul respected the temple. He wouldn't have been there otherwise. In fact, he made it a goal to try to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, to celebrate Pentecost, a Jewish holiday. So their accusations were untrue, they were false. And so they basically attack him. And so what does Paul do with that? Look at verse 1 through 5 of chapter 22. After Paul is arrested, after he's hauled away by the Roman centurion trying to protect him, he asked the centurion for an opportunity to talk to the crowd that had just tried to kill him. And this is how he starts. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. That's the word apologetics, defense there. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. 
And also the high priest and the council of elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. What we basically see here with Paul is that he's going to reveal to them his former misguided zealousness for God. He's going to talk to them about his former misguided zealousness of God. It's interesting that as Paul actually does this, he's not going to spend nearly as much time defending himself as he does his role as a preacher of the gospel. He's going to own up to it. So the first thing he does in his speech today is establish the fact that he once shared the same kind of misguided zealousness for God that his accusers did. In fact, earlier, remember, James had said that they were zealous for the law. And we find that here as well. So he counters their argument that he preached against the Jews, the law, and the temple by establishing that he was a Jew through and through. He was born Jewish. He was born in the city of Tarsus, but he was actually raised in Jerusalem, the heart and soul of Judaism. He was educated and trained in strict accordance with the law, by one of the greatest Jewish minds in history, Gamaliel. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a leader of among leader among leaders. They should have known this. He continued that claim, or by claiming that he matched even excite, or even exceeded their zealousness for God. In some respects, he basically said, "You think you're zealous? <laughs> I'm going to tell you something about me. My zealousness." For God exceeded that of most. He said, I persecuted Christians. I killed some of them. I put others, men and women alike, in prison. He said, I chased them down outside of Jerusalem. I even had the endorsement of the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, to go and track down these Jews or these Christians. I was zealous for God just as you are today. He's saying, I was just like you. Notice the key word there is was. Why would Paul do this? Why would he start his speech this way? I think the takeaway for us is this. Identifying with those we are witnessing to is a powerful tool. We're all certainly sinners, just like those we bear witness to. Some of us might have been religious. Some of us might have been secular. Maybe we shared some of the same struggles, likes, or dislikes. I think about the opportunity I shared with you, or that I mentioned to you last week and even a few weeks before that, about a woman at work having the opportunity to share the gospel with her after she came down to my office in tears. I was able to talk to her about my own struggles, because she was talking about being depressed, the struggle she was facing in her marriage. And I was able to share with her my own struggle with depression prior to coming to Christ. And it was interesting, because you could see a connection was made there. She sensed I understood what she was going through because I shared my own struggle with her as well. Paul does something very similar here. He takes advantage of the fact that they're zealous for God. That's a good thing. It's just that they were misguided. Just like he was misguided. And he's going to lead them along that path. He's going to say, I was just like you. Zealous for God. But then something happened. Something changed. And so the first takeaway for us, I think, is that we've got to take advantage of that. You know, the world, just because of the way the world is, oftentimes thinks of Christians as being holier than thou and uppity and arrogant and proud. And sometimes we bring that upon ourselves. Sometimes we don't. But the reality is, we're all sinners. And it's helpful and beneficial when we are witnessing the gospel to others that we don't stand above them, but stand alongside them. Remind them of hey, we're the same in many respects. I hate those bumper stickers that you see that, because they, I think they try to communicate this, but I think it's sort of an in-your-face, but it's, you know, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. I mean, the reality is that that's true. But I think it's kind of an in-your-face sometimes, can be perceived that way. But again, the takeaway I think here for us is that Paul was, was starting off by 
sort of explain to them, I was just like you. I had this zealousness for God, and that's a good thing. You know, one thing that I often try to do with, when I get the opportunity to share the gospel, I, I mentioned uh, quite a few weeks ago two more individuals that I had an opportunity to share with over the phone, people that are out in Kansas. And um, both of them had expressed initially that they had some religious interest and background. And so I took advantage of that because it was something we shared in common. Now, neither one were Christian, but I was able to talk to them about their commitment to faith and then was able to use that as a way of then talking towards Christ. Paul does something very similar here. When I was in seminary, I met this guy at the gym who was... um, he was a Christian, but he was considering converting to Catholicism because he liked the um, liturgy and some other things. And so um, I mentioned to him one time that, that I was a Catholic growing up. And it was interesting how that created this instant sort of um, bond, if you will, where he would talk to me because he respected the fact that I understood Catholicism. And as we talked... Um, I was able to talk to him very um, intelligently about Catholicism because I had not only grown up in it, but I actually had studied Catholicism after I had left the Catholic Church. I would go to the, the library and read through the Catholic encyclopedias trying to understand the theology behind what they did because many of my friends were Catholic. And he respected that. And it gave us a great opportunity to, to talk. And so Paul does something very similar I was just like you, zealous for God. I would imagine he had their attention at this point, because I'm sure they wanted to know what happened. Well, Paul describes next what actually happened. He's going to describe three elements from his encounter with Christ. The first element is the confrontation over his sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, but it happened. In other words, I was zealous just like you, but then something happened. But it happened that as I was on my way, on his way what? Approaching Damascus about noontime. Why? Out of his zealousness for God, I was persecuting Christians. I was on my way doing God's service when all of a sudden something happened. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the first thing Paul reveals here is that Jesus Christ appeared and confronted him over his misguided zealousness, his sin, his ignorance when it came to the things that God wanted. Paul may have been zealous for God, but he was arrogant, he was proud, he was misinformed, and he was misguided. All of that caused him to sin against the Lord that he thought he was serving. Religion is like that. I know many who are religious that believe they're serving God, but in their ignorance are actually sinning. So Paul says, the Lord confronted me on the road to Damascus about my own sin. He cried out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The second element from Paul's encounter here is an acknowledgement and an exception of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. He said, I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. What we find here is Paul admitting, recognizing that Jesus Christ was alive, that he had risen from the dead. Because even Paul, as he's there, hears this voice, doesn't quite know initially who it is that's speaking to him. But he admits here that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that would have been a shock for the Jews. They thought they had put him to death. They thought he was dead. And here Paul is saying, he confronted me and he's alive. He spoke to me from heaven. Those around me saw what happened. They saw the light. They'd be witnesses to what took place. They did not understand the words, but nonetheless, they knew something happened. 
This is important because belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential for salvation. You can see Paul laying the groundwork here for the gospel. Because there is no gospel with a dead Jesus. So he reveals here that in this encounter, he saw the resurrected Christ and heard from him. It's also important because Paul, this encounter that he had with the risen Christ, made him a witness to the resurrection. We've seen Paul talk about that before. does that in some of his letters. He said, I didn't get this from somebody else. It's not like somebody else just told me this stuff happened. I was a witness to the resurrected Christ. So that's important as he speaks to the Jews. In fact, I want you to jump down into chapter 23, verse 6 through 9. When Paul is before the council of the Sanhedrin, they begin to argue as they're listening to Paul. But look at what they say in verse 9. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And he said this, or as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Basically, Paul recognized that there's these Sadducees and these Pharisees, and he was very clever in what he did. He basically set them arguing against themselves because Paul knew that the resurrection of Christ was essential. It's the gospel. So he basically says, gentlemen, really what I'm on trial for here is the resurrection of the dead. Well, obviously then the Pharisees, well, that's a good thing. And the Sadducees, no, 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 that's false doctrine. And so they begin to argue with one another. But then look at what happens in verse 9. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Now look at this. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Now that's critical, because what they're basically saying is, Paul told us something happened. He heard this voice from the heavens. Hmm. Maybe something did speak. And they didn't admit it was Christ here, but at least they might have been an angel, a messenger. Might have been something else. But maybe this really did happen. So Paul describing to them this encounter on the road to Damascus with the risen Christ had already gotten some thinking. And so that second element, the second thing that he shares about this encounter with Christ is that it was the resurrected Jesus that he saw. The third element that Paul describes is his decision to obey. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul describes his response. As a result of seeing and hearing from Christ from heaven, Paul tells his audience, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So the third element that Paul describes here is his obedience to the Lord. You notice that the very first words out of his mouth are, What shall I do, Lord? Paul's words weren't mere lip service. He was genuinely committed to obey Jesus. We know that because immediately he's gone into Damascus just as the Lord had commanded him. He tells the Jews that. I got up, and even though I couldn't see, I did exactly what he said to do, which is to go into Damascus. We also know that Paul obeyed. If you jump down into verse 16, when Ananias is talking to him, He says, why do you delay? Paul, get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The Lord, through Ananias, commanded Paul to do two things. One was to get up and be baptized, and Paul did just that. The second was to wash away his sins by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul did that as well. In fact, Acts chapter 9, verse 18, Paul did this immediately. Didn't hesitate. Didn't wait. And so... What we basically see here is by Paul describing his encounter with Jesus, he's laying the foundation for what he's going to say next, which has to do with the essence of his calling and the authority behind his mission. So Paul basically 
starts by looking at the Jews and saying, I'm just like you. I was zealous for God. But then something happened. I met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He confronted me about my sin. I acknowledged and recognized that he indeed had risen from the dead. And I decided to obey him. And I did so immediately. See what Paul's doing here? He hasn't taken an opportunity yet to defend his actions, but rather he's defending why it is that he's preaching Jesus Christ. And it's because I was zealous for the Lord, but I was misguided until he confronted me and I chose to obey him. And then look at what he does. He establishes the essence of his calling in the next chunk. Before we do that, though, what's our takeaway with this? I don't think we can underestimate the importance of our own personal testimony when it comes to sharing the gospel. It's our encounter with Jesus that motivates us. It's what causes us to obey him. And I think when we talk with people about Jesus, I think it's important for us to share our own encounter with him. That's the easiest way to share the gospel. You don't have to do the Romans road or the four spiritual laws necessarily. We're simply told to give an answer to the hope that we have. It's one thing to stand up and preach on a street corner. It's another thing to simply share how it is you met Jesus. And that in essence is what Jesus or what Paul does here. They didn't like Paul for what he was doing, and Paul stands up and says, yeah, but I do this because I met Jesus. And he describes that encounter. We ought to enjoy doing that. Now, for some of you, you might have been raised in a Christian home. Maybe as as, um, Tim Hawkins kind of has a little, the comedian Christian, comedian Tim Hawkins has a routine that he does about, you know, why can't I have an awesome testimony? Why couldn't I have been a crack dealer and a crackhead and have this great conversion? Those make the best stories. Some have great stories like that, you know. I don't necessarily have a great story like that. My story was simply that I was raised Catholic, but I didn't know Christ. When I got to college, I was severely depressed, thought about killing myself on numerous occasions. I happened to meet some Christian guy on my floor that had a goal of sharing the gospel with everyone, and he finally had worn me down to where I was willing to listen to him. And the gospel made sense to me radically changed my life. Some of you may have an even more, I'll say, muted testimony. You were raised in a Christian home and you don't know of a time where you really didn't know Christ. But that's your testimony as well. And you can talk about that because I'm sure at some point it went from your parents' faith to your own faith. What led you to that point? So Paul shares his own experience on how he met Christ. And for us, the takeaway could be how important that is for ourselves and our witness with Christ. Just tell people how we came to know Christ. But Paul moves on from there and now establishes the essence of his calling. If you look at verses 12 through 16, let me read those. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. An important concept in ancient Judaism in the early church was this necessity for two or three witnesses to confirm something. We see it when addressing sin. In fact, Deuteronomy basically says that when it came to violations of the law, two or three witnesses were required to confirm the violation, especially when it came to the death penalty. That was built into the law. Just one person accused you of sin, it wasn't enough to convict you. Multiple witnesses were required. Jesus confirmed this practice in Matthew 18 when he talks about confronting unrepentant sin. If somebody sins against you, 
And you go and you talk to them privately and they say, I didn't do it, or they even admit it to you and don't want to do anything about it. If you need help resolving that issue, Jesus said, well then, go and get somebody to witness it with you. So they can see and they can evaluate. And so Jesus followed that same principle. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, when you're confronting elders... You can't just accept the accusation of one. There must be multiple witnesses. This is a principle laid out in the scriptures. It wasn't just in dealing with sin. It was also used in determining the truth in other matters. Turn to John, or 1 John chapter 1. It was important in establishing the truth when it came to sin, but also in other areas. First John chapter 1. This is the message we have, verse 5, that we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we have made him a liar and his word is not in us. Paul is, or I'm sorry, John, as he establishes or walks through his letter here, we'll, we'll let you kind of work through this on your own, he begins with this discussion of our own sin and our own lives, but he goes on later to talk about the witness of the Spirit and the Father and the Son, multiple witnesses establishing the truth of the Gospel as it relates to our own sin and other things. As you get to the book of Revelation, we also see Revelation 11, that God sends two witnesses at the end of time, in the end of days, to witness the truth to the world. And so you have this principle as you go throughout the scriptures of the need for multiple witnesses to prove the truth of something. I believe that is what Paul is doing here. He's going to establish the essence of his ministry not just based on his own witness, but on the witness of another individual. Ananias serves as a second witness to Paul's calling by Jesus. Paul was the first eyewitness. Ananias was the second. Ananias wasn't just some stranger. He was a well-known, well-respected man. He was a man of God who lived in Damascus. We're told in verse 12 of that chapter that he was devoted by every standard of the law. So if they were hesitant to take Paul's word for what happened, they could surely check with Ananias. He was well-known. Again, he wasn't a stranger. He was well-respected. He was still alive at this time. And so in essence, Paul is saying, check with Ananias. He could confirm Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. He could confirm that Paul was blind and that God used him to restore his sight. He could confirm that God had appointed Paul to know his will, to reveal himself, because Ananias even said, God has appointed you to see the righteous one and to hear a message from him. They could check with Ananias about that. Ananias could confirm that the Lord called Paul to, Paul's words are, be a witness to him, to all men, of what he had seen and what he had heard. The final thing that Ananias could confirm was that Paul himself had been baptized and was a follower of Jesus. And so in essence, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I've got multiple witnesses to what I'm telling you is true. I did have an encounter with Jesus, and there's a man named Ananias that can confirm all of this. And he's a respected eyewitness to what I experienced. So what Paul is actually doing here is establishing before this mob the essence of his calling. Don't just take my word for it. Jesus Christ himself called me from heaven to be his witness. Ananias will back that up. God appointed me to be a witness to men everywhere. I'm not preaching against the Jews. I'm not preaching against the law or the temple. I'm testifying about Jesus Christ and the biblical truth that he revealed to me. And you can check with Ananias. That's the second witness. What's the takeaway for us with this? The essence of our calling as Christians is to do just what Paul did. 
testify about Jesus. They don't have to take our, our word for it. Millions and millions and millions of Christians all over the world all testify of their encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus left us here so that we could make known to others what we've seen and heard about him. Notice that's what Ananias actually told Paul. You're supposed to reveal what Jesus revealed to you. Testify everything you've heard and seen about him. I think sometimes we get caught up in the pursuits and the pleasures of this life. And we forget that our main responsibility is to simply be the witness that Jesus asked us to be, to testify what we've learned about him. I think sometimes we get a little focused, too, on this idea that the gospel is just about salvation in Christ, but it's really not. The gospel is all-encompassing on what we've learned and heard about our Heavenly Father and about Jesus Christ. So when we stand up for certain things in our culture and community, when we stand up for life, or when we stand up for biblical views of marriage, or biblical views of morality, those are, in essence, elements of the gospel. Not the pure, simple gospel of just salvation in Christ, but they are all reflected and reflective of God's biblical truths. We are supposed to be witnesses of all that we have learned and heard. And that's what Paul was called to do. That's the essence of his calling. That's what he's sharing with the Jews here. He's saying, look, I was zealous just like you. But I was misguided until Jesus got a hold of me. He confronted me on my sin. I responded in obedience. I saw the risen Christ. I'm now a witness to everything I have learned and seen. That is the essence of what I'm... I'm not here to preach against the Jews. I'm not here to preach against Moses. I'm not here to desecrate the temple. I'm here to reveal Jesus Christ. That's the essence of my ministry. I think sometimes as Christians, we get known more for those things we're against than those things we're for. That's one of the dangers of always preaching against things we see in our culture and our society. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Paul generally reserved those things for writing to Christians, which is interesting. As we look at Paul's messages in the book of Acts, we don't generally hear him making the focus preaching against the sin of the culture and society around him, but rather preaching about the things he knew of Jesus Christ. That ought to be our model. But in many respects, we have kind of flipped that where we almost sometimes spend more time preaching against the ills of culture and society and trying to change or redeem culture and society when we should be spending more time simply preaching about Jesus Christ. Now again, that doesn't mean we ignore those issues. Maybe I frame it this way. It's one thing to preach on biblical marriage It's another thing to simply preach against other illicit forms of sexual morality. And yet, sometimes, that's the way it comes across. Is that fair? Again, it doesn't mean that we never say anything. We never talk about the ills of society. Those things should be confronted. But there's a fine line sometimes. And sometimes, we get a bigger charge out of preaching against stuff than we do preaching about Jesus Christ. It's hard to talk to a sinner about sin when that's all you do. When Bob shared the gospel with me, I needed to recognize my sin, so he talked to me about sin, but he also talked to me about the need for forgiveness, the need for Christ, the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that came through. Those are the things that drew me to Christ. Now, he talked with me about my sin, but he spent the majority of his time preaching about what Christ had done in his life, made Christ attractive to me. But again, didn't ignore my sin, but it wasn't the focal point. And what we see Paul actually doing here is he's establishing that my calling is to witness everything I've learned and seen about Jesus Christ. Again, when he was being confronted by simply going about preaching against Moses and the law and Jews, 
But Paul says, no, the essence of my ministry is to preach Christ, to tell you everything I've known about Christ and the things that I've learned. The last thing that we see in Paul's defensive speech, if you will, here, is that he declares the authority behind his mission, especially among the Gentiles. The second accusation that the Jews made against Paul was basically about his relationship with the Gentiles. They seemed to think that Paul had abandoned his Jewish heritage, that he had personally forsaken the law and preferred living like a Gentile. That's at the heart and soul of what they were doing. They accused him of teaching Jews everywhere to do the same. That was chapter 21, verse 21. He's teaching the Jews to obey or to abandon Moses. They even accused him of defiling the temple by taking Gentiles in there with them. But none of that was based on fact. It was born out of jealousy and this general disdain for the Gentiles. You remember what happened with Peter when he actually went to Cornelius' family? Jump back to Acts chapter 10, verse 27. Acts chapter 10, verse 27. When Peter showed up at Cornelius' house, Cornelius was a Gentile, the house was filled with Gentiles. He had been told to go there by the Holy Spirit. The Lord had shown him a blanket coming down from heaven covered with pork products and told him to eat. <laughs> you remember all that? The Lord told him, don't, uh, don't, call what, don't call what I call holy degraded or defiled. In other words, he's preparing him to go see Cornelius. So as he walks through the threshold of Cornelius' house here, verse 27, as he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. These are Gentiles. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. In other words, Peter says, You realize this is not good for me to be here. This is unlawful for me to be here. What he meant was the Jewish tradition. There was no Jewish law against it, but they treated it that way. Peter could get himself in trouble. He's like, you realize that, don't you? But then he tells them, and yet God has shown to me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. You see, the Jews had a general disdain for Gentiles. They were dirty. They were defiled. Even being in their presence could then defile you. So when they looked at Paul and his association with Gentiles, they were offended by that. They didn't like Paul going to the Gentiles. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't proselytize. They did because they were sort of that reluctant, well, yeah, God will let a Gentile sort of worship with us as long as they do all the law things, you know, and we're okay with that. But yet they really weren't. And so they had this disdain for the Gentiles and it rubbed off on how they viewed Paul because they had heard Paul was ministering to the Gentiles. Word had got back because of the Jews in Asia. They didn't like that. So much like Peter's association with Cornelius and his family, he was commanded to go to them in the same way Paul was commanded to go to the Gentiles, and he's not going to let the Jews, this group, this angry mob, walk away not understanding that his mission to the Gentiles was something specifically commanded to him by the Lord, just like it was Cornelius. Look at verses 17 through 21 back in chapter 22. Paul is still defending his actions, defending his role to this angry mob that had tried to kill him. Verse 17, he says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him... That's the Lord saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and to beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your uh, witness Stephen was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats for those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away, and here it is, to the Gentiles. What is Paul doing here? He's relaying to these Jews the authority behind his ministry to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, when I got back to Damascus, the Lord appeared to me in a vision. 
And he specifically told me to leave and to go out to the Gentiles. And Paul says, but I actually argued with him. The Lord said, the Jews aren't going to accept your witness. Oh, but I said, oh, but no, no, they'll understand because, see, they know I persecuted the, you know, the, the Christians and all that, and, and now they see me, I'm a changed person, so they'll all accept that, and it'll be a great ministry. And, but the Lord said, no, go, because I've got a different purpose for you. I'm sending you out to the Gentiles. And so what Paul does with this is he tells this angry mob of Jews, the reason I'm witnessing to the Gentiles it's because Jesus specifically told me to go to the Gentiles. If you've got a problem with that, take it up with God. Because he's the one that sent me. All of this establishes before this mob that Paul was not operating under his own authority, but under the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters, how often does he open those letters by saying, I was called, I was a bondservant to Jesus Christ. Paul didn't operate under his own authority. He wasn't just some wayward Jew who disregarded his heritage that decided to go off and live like a pagan among the Gentiles. Paul says, no, I I was zealous for the Lord and I still am. But I was misguided. I was ignorant. Until he knocked me off my horse revealed himself to me, called me into obedience. You can check with Ananias to see. I'm not operating under my own authority. I've been given a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ to be his witnesses, and specifically, among the Gentiles. What's the takeaway for us on this? We do not operate or exist under our own authority. We operate under the authority of the Lord. Just like Paul, we exist and operate under the Lord's authority. The world often claims that we have no right to declare the biblical truths that we do. Isn't that what we're being told now? In fact, lately, we're being told that we don't even have the right to believe the things that we believe and practice. It was just, you believe what you want, but you have no right to preach them. You have no right to declare anything against what we're doing as the world. If you want to believe that marriage is between a husband and a wife, fine, but don't you dare enforce that on us as a culture and a society. If you want to preach Jesus Christ, fine, do it in your churches, but don't you dare do it in schools or out in the public square. Don't you do it in politics. I was reading an article yesterday by a group of 30 or 40 Democrats, when Biden took office, they wrote him a letter. It's a group of, they call themselves secular Democrats, demanding that Christians be removed from any official government office, agency, or position because they have no right to serve in any official capacity in government if they bear the name of Jesus. 32 of our current senators, or congressmen, I don't know if they're senators or House. We're being told, not only can you not preach it, but you can't even believe it yourself. You have no right. Think about what's been going on with the whole LGBT thing and everything else, where it is no longer about acceptance or tolerance, is it? It's, by golly, you better believe it yourself or we will come after you. Because even in your own business, we demand that you A, B, or C. We've got the group in Wisconsin, the Freedom from Religious Foundation, that specifically goes and targets Christian ministries. You know, there's a big boat down in Kentucky, the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter down there. Christian ministries, visited by all kinds of Christians all over the world that come in to see it. But you see, they don't want that, the group from Wisconsin. They don't even want Christians going there. You see, it isn't about tolerance or acceptance. It's you can't even believe it yourself. So not only should we not have the right to preach or declare it, but we don't have the right to believe it ourselves. 
I've been doing some research for, for an upcoming message here. On our own federal government, specifically referring to Christians as domestic terrorists. In fact, under Obama, as part of military training, evangelical Christians were listed on the top of the list that our own military is supposed to look at and to research, calling them domestic terrorists. It was back with the Obama administration. We have the training material. Here's the thing, though. We don't need the world's permission, do we? We don't need the world's permission to believe it. We don't even need the world's permission to preach it and to teach it. So while they may say we don't have the right to do it here or there, we don't need their rights. We don't need their permissions. Why? Because we operate under the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember how Acts started? Acts chapter 1. And we'll wrap it up with this. Acts chapter 1. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. He gathers them together, the disciples. Verse 4, he says, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said was, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you're going to restore your kingdom? And he said, no. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the way the book of Acts begins. Jesus Christ saying, you are going out under my authority to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, not just in Judea and Samaria, but everywhere. What did Matthew leave us with at the very end of the book of Matthew, the Great Commission, where Jesus Christ commanded, commanded us that we would, as we are going, make disciples by baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. That's our authority. And so Paul, as he's talking to these Jews, as he's making a defense here, you notice that the whole entire thing has been about his mission as a witness for Jesus Christ. And he provides a defense for that. And the way that he ends it is to basically say, I'm operating under the authority of Jesus Christ. The Jews didn't like it. Our world doesn't like it. We don't need their permission. Paul didn't need the Jews' permission because he operated under the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen?